Thank you, Leila, for that very warm and welcoming introduction, and uh, generous as well. Um, and to Matilde as well for helping to organize this. Um, I was speaking uh, last night to a friend, and uh, was, uh, she asked me to describe my accommodations last night, and I hope it won't be churlish if I uh, to tell you that I described them as somewhere between very, very modest and Spartan, um, <laughs> to which she responded, Spartan. Well, then, I guess that means upon return from your talk, you must return with your shield or on it. <laughs> we'll see. Um, there's a single recurrent question that uh, comes up again and again across all efforts to understand and address mass atrocity, though it's almost never raised explicitly, certainly not placed front and center. And the question's very ubiquity, offers one reason why it may be helpful to think of transitional justice as a single field of thought and action. The question is whether to conceive the chief dramatist persona, that is the perpetrators, victims, beneficiaries, as primarily individual persons or instead as collectivities of various types. There are today several leading methods of atrocity response, and each of these answers the question somewhat different, privileging the individual over the collective or vice versa, along distinctive lines in ways that I'll show. It's not a binary choice, though, more of a continuum, a matter of degree, since in none of these methods do individuals or collectivities wholly displace the other, either as wrongdoers or as victims, without facing periodic challenge, at least. International law and politics leave countries much freedom to choose among these several methods of atrocity response. So the result is that from a global standpoint, we alternate between individualizing and collectivizing with pertinent parties with profound practical consequences for who gets blamed and who benefits. The question and the challenges it raises are nearly unique to this type of event, I think, because here alone is the collectivizing impulse always strongly present and undeniable for reasons both practical and theoretical, sociological, economic, and philosophical. The collectivizing option, in other words, in law and policy, is always on the table. Credible, never beyond bounds of serious consideration. Now, of course, it's always possible, you could say, to discern a collective or institutional aspect um, in virtually every kind of wrongdoing and try to work that systematic, systemic, or structural aspect into the legal foreground. So it's not just on the background. So what did I just do? Help. I just touched something. It's always possible to find a collective aspect to any kind of wrongdoing and to try and work that into the legal analysis. But Western law strongly disfavors this conceptual move in nearly all fields, um, where it's not simply foreclosed altogether. And this disfavor extends not only to how the law understands, conceptualizes the wrongdoer, but also the victim as well. With mass atrocity, though, we have conflicting impulses, yea and nay, on the question of whether to collectivize the key characters, and in what circumstances, how to do so. The particulars of a given episode and the specific circumstances of its aftermath are what largely account for the relative strength of these competing warring impulses. Sometimes these impulses, though, are equally balanced, which then prompts us in opposite directions at once. They influence real-life events, too, by inducing those engaged in transitional justice decision-making at a given place or time to favor differing modes of legal and policy response. And that's so even when all involved in the discussions are committed to some kind of serious, meaningful response. Now, these disagreements over when to individualize and when to collectivize account for much of the seeming incoherence, I think, in the world's response to mass atrocity from one circumstance to another. And yet each approach and how it alternates between aggregating or atomizing the characters corresponds and attends to different aspects of mass atrocity itself. The appearance of incoherence, then, is something of um, an illusion, I think. 
The various modes of atrocity response all engage in social construction, if you will. That is, defining the characters one way or another, individual or collective. Um, but each of these methods of approach is most convincing and most likely to win favor in real life when it manages to capture something genuinely salient in the facts at hand. Thus, when someone opposes, opposes a given method of atrocity response, he often argues that if one fairly carefully examines the facts about who really did what to whom, one finds them inconsistent with this way of responding, this particular response, because it insists on characterizing the wrongdoer or the victim the wrong way. It mistreats them. That is, it treats individuals as if they were, um, when they should be uh, really regarded as members of collectivities or the other way around. This is a little abstract. I'll get specific. Sure. But this is a major form that argument takes, legal and political argument takes in the context of these events when attributions of responsibility for mass atrocity are made and contested. That is, charges that the chosen method of atrocity response is the wrong one because it misconceives the true character and the true nature of the characters, forces itself upon, upon the facts and distorts empirical realities. Let me first delineate our conflicting impulses toward the wrongdoer, whether to atomize or aggregate our legal understanding of him or it. Then I'll identify our equally warring inclinations over how to conceptualize the victim. Okay. There's an undoubted affinity, very often, for individuating the wrongdoer. This has two sources. First, deterrence. The prevailing view is that in light of how mass atrocity comes about, threatening individual leaders with serious sanction, notably international criminal prosecution, gets incentives right, or at least it's the best way we've yet discovered to align the interests of leading wrongdoers in these episodes with those who would condemn or suffer their potential wrongdoing, that is, the rest of us. To prevent major misconduct by large collectivities, sovereign states, military bureaucracies, complex business entities, we have to target more specifically the incentives of their individual leaders, those institutional behemoths more easily than natural persons can readily absorb the costs of sanction and pass them on to citizens, taxpayers, or stockholders. In the economic lingo, agency problems are too severe to address the challenge from the opposite direction. That is, by inflicting the costs of misconduct directly on those collectivities, expecting this will somehow induce their leaders to behave, to responsibly serve the interests of those they emotionally represent. The second reason for individualizing the wrongdoer is that the opposing path, collectivizing, makes it virtually impossible to do retributive justice. There's a long-standing fear, after all, that once we start down the path of plumbing the structural sources of wrongdoing, any notion of moral responsibility for a given incident of wrongdoing, any notion suitable for purposes of sanctioning it, at least, soon dissolves into something like sociological analysis or scientific explanation. We resist this result, especially with mass atrocity, because the magnitude of the wrong elicits in us strong moral sentiments, reactive attitudes, which make us unwilling, presumably, to settle for value-free diagnosis of impersonal social structures. The ethical enormity of the events and the measured indignation they inspire strongly disposes toward finding someone to blame and sanction, provided we can conceive of some convincing way to do that. This indignation evokes retributive sentiments that make sense only when directed against someone or something with a capacity for moral will. Collectivities lack that, strictly speaking. And nothing in the recent philosophical writing on collective intentionality, as I read it, really indicates otherwise. We also have inclinations, though, good reasons at times, to collectivize, collectivize the wrongdoing. When our purposes are not chiefly those of retribution or deterrence. First, collectivities are always, they always provide deeper pockets for civil compensation of wrong victims than do individual wrongdoers, even when it's possible to trace an individual's hidden foreign assets, as it often is. Second, collectivizing the wrongdoer becomes appealing when there's also a serious danger of political backlash against transitional justice measures from the particular people most responsible for the wrongs, those likely to suffer direct sanctioning under an individualizing approach. Thus, for instance, it's easier for a truth commission to abstractly condemn a culture of impunity, 
even to criticize the armed forces or police in general terms, rather than their generalissimo in particular for very specific wrongs at a given time and place. Third, often institutions require reform, everyone agrees, if atrocities are not to recur. To reform the armed forces, for instance, first requires that the armed forces themselves be identified as a wrongdoer in its own right, in some intelligible sense. Individuals within that institution, from this perspective, acted largely in the service of its goals due to the incentives it created for them. The source of those morally distorted incentives is lies in the structure and policies of the organization. So we must treat it as a collective actor if we're to effectively get at the roots of the problem. Fourth, for purposes of historical, historical explanation, it's impossible to identify the relevant causal forces that work in a given episode of mass atrocity by talking only about the particular acts of misconduct by top leaders, or for that matter, by the lowest echelons proximately engaged in the immediate violence. It's necessary to contextualize events within a larger frame of social political analysis, the kind in which historians and social scientists offer hand. This is true even if, even if one favors so-called intentionalist over functionalist explanations for what transpired, that is, the names for competing schools of thought over the origins of the Holocaust. Offering the public an adequate historical explanation, or at least a fair recounting, recounting of what took place, is very often a central aim of transitional justice, as you know. It's essential in order to undo the pervasive lies that oppressive prior leaders told the public in justification or denial of their misconduct. The impulse to collectivize the victim has three sources. First, this too, like collectivizing the wrongdoer, makes for better historical explanation, since victims were invariably targeted because of their membership in stigmatized social groups, races, ethnicities, on account of their shared gender. Their individual deaths were, in a sense, incidental to the wrongdoer's effort to damage or destroy an entire collectivity of some kind. Second, inclinations to collectivize the victim, to treat it as a single entity, emerge when it proves impossible to compensate or otherwise redress individual injuries, despite relevant differences in what each person has suffered. Thus, even in ordinary civil litigation, ordinary civil litigation, the court sometimes treats victims uh, as members of a class, though they never viewed themselves this way until the lawsuit itself very often. And a collective remedy, like construction of a public monument or a new tribal headquarters, is the only remedy available, practically speaking, when many individual victims are dead. Or where information costs in identifying corresponding with surviving ones are extraordinary, as when they're spread across the world, like Holocaust survivors, or because they're largely illiterate, like, illiterate, like many indigenous peoples with claims before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. These are practical issues of administration, cost, effective implementation. There's sometimes a third reason, quite different in nature, for construing the victim holistically. There may be genuine elements of harm to a group as such, to its communal life and institutions, harm that's not fully, fairly captured by remedies that reduce the distinctive experience of a shared social life together to the sum of what particular individuals within the group suffer. So when community institutions are destroyed by genocide, for instance, the law's remedial efforts might defensively focus on rebuilding those very institutions, expecting that this will, in turn, indirectly benefit the individuals who may involve themselves in the life of those institutions. Finally, there's often a powerful inclination, intuition to individuate the victim of mass atrocity for two reasons. First, some fear that collectivizing victims implicitly reproduces the same moral error of the wrongdoers, that is, denying their human dignity as individuals and the palpable particularity of their suffering by subsuming them all under some single broad sociological category, the very same category, their murderers employed, in fact, in order to justify murder. There's something distinctly uncomfortable, at the very least, even perhaps dehumanizing, if some, some have argued, about conceptualizing the victims as an indistinct mass, lumping them into some amorphous remedial category 
even if this obviously can't be equated, even metaphorically, with dumping their bodies into mass graves. There's a second reason for individuating the victim, many believe. When the victims are to receive major compensation for their losses, fierce disagreements often arise as they should count as one, as a victim. Those who must pay compensation naturally favor conceptions of the victim more individuated than those who seek to benefit from the anticipated remedial schema, especially those whose claim to victimhood and hence to profit from the program may be quite tenuous. Broader brush sociological type categories generally serve these penumbral claimants to victimhood much better than do more precise legal tests requiring specific evidence of individuated To take an American example, the policy of racial preferences called affirmative action conceives the victim of slavery and of Jim Crow and therefore to the proper beneficiaries of legal redress as a certain social category of people. Many, many of the individuals actually profiting from this remedy, however, including recent upper class immigrants from Africa, among others, turn out to have suffered only de minimis personal harm, if any at all, from those violent structural wrongs. And it's precisely this mismatch between historic victim and current remedial beneficiary that makes this, le this legal response to those wrongs so highly controversial among many of my country. They insist, in other words, on greater individuation and in how the law defines slavery's victims. Now, the more particular questions that I want you to consider as I work through the several modes of atrocity response are these. First, why does a given type of response adopt this particular pattern of individuating and collectivizing? Why does it situate itself along the continuum just as it does? Second, how much is the actual choice between alternative modes of atrocity response in real life governed? Governed precisely by how each of them individualizes and collectivizes the characters. I'll con conclude in this regard in that um, how we characterize the wrongdoer, at least, um, the impulse to individualize there springs, is powerful and it springs from a desire to deter primarily. Whereas the inclination to collectivize the wrongdoer stems from a desire primarily to explain and redress, the, come to terms with the past. And third, third question, how much does the historical explanation that we offer about a terrible past have to perfectly track or match, underwrite the legal measures we advance in seeking to a very different sort of future? Those preferring a given method of atrocity response often contend that it's best, that it best prevents future recurrence of past horrors precisely because it best understands what truly caused them not long ago. Thus, for instance, those who claim to find the chief sources of mass atrocity in the dysfunctional workings of some collectivity often express great reservations about the frequent post-atrocity focus on criminal prosecution, national or international. In fact, on any method of atrocity response that construes the wrongdoer atomistically. Those embracing this stance here find themselves quite uncomfortably on the same ground as defendants themselves, who often contend, after all, that they're being blamed for more than they've actually brought about, that they are sacrificial lambs, at least, if not actually innocent scapegoats. Others retort that any such effort to expand the narrative frame uh, distorts history by reducing the causal role of flesh and blood human beings, even the most obviously consequential, turning them into mere playthings of vast impersonal forces, often characterized in wholly incompatible terms by scholars of differing theoretical ilk. Let's now look um, at several varieties of atrocity response. The top line runs from left to right from type of atrocity response to type of wrongdoer to type of victim. And by type of wrongdoer and type of victim, I mean not some hard ontological reality out there, but rather matters of collective representations. That is, how a given type of legal policy response sees fit to define the pertinent parties. First, international criminal law. Now, in a nutshell, ICL construes the wrongdoers as individuals, the victims today heavily as groups. As for wrongdoers, the International Law Commission and the Rome Statute, the ICC, reject the concept of state criminality and also of corporate criminal liability. So by formal stipulation and collectivities, 
are not susceptible to prosecution. But this decision to blame only individual presents the problem, both theoretical and practical, that even the most powerful leader cannot commit mass atrocities by himself. So ICL has had to devise these so-called modes of commission by which to link the intentions of a particular defendant to the acts of those directly performing the violence, often through a large number of intermediaries. Hence the doctrines of joint criminal enterprise, command responsibility, controlled over hierarchical administrative apparatus, all designed specifically to conceptualize the defendant as a true perpetrator, not merely an accessory to the wrongs of others. So by this route, we find a way to reinsert the collective dimension that's essential to understanding how a perpetrator managed to have so devastating an effect, that is, by way of his influence or over or cooperation with um, lots of other people, in ways that are distinctive largely to this kind of episode. Victims of international crime used to be conceived only as individuals when the chief offenses were war crimes and, before that, piracy. But today, the offenses prioritized by prosecutors, and also in the scholarly commentary, are genocide, persecution, gender crimes, extermination, apartheid. In all of these, the victim is understood as a group of some sort. Civil compensation. With this legal response, the wrongdoer is always a collectivity, usually the sovereign state accused of large-scale human rights abuse or of aggression as a civil delict in this context, or grave breaches, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. Multinational corporations were occasionally sued in my country for complicity in atrocities under the Alien Tort Claims Act, and corporations are obviously collectivities, but this was almost only in the US and based on a dubious and ultimately rejected interpretation of the relevant domestic statute. In suits for civil compensation, the victims are virtually always conceived as individuals, and so they receive remedies tailored to their individual losses insofar as possible. Those to benefit from the remedial measures must also be the same individuals harmed by the defendant's illegal conduct with few exceptions. Even class actions do not abandon the individualist premises, the implicit social ontology, if you will, underlying all conventional or conventional forms of civil litigation. Next, truth commissions. Here the wrongdoer is conceived chiefly as the sovereign state, or certain of its agencies, that is, whereas the victims become the country at large. Only rarely are officers of the state individually named, though their names are always gathered and sometimes confidentially referred to prosecutors for possible criminal prosecution. Concerns about due process dissuade most truth commissions, agencies in the state, after all, from publicly naming an individual without granting him the opportunity to question his accusers. The names of individual victims are often made public with recommendations for their compensation, but the published report itself is nearly always written up to emphasize how the state as a whole, through its security forces, harmed the country as a whole in multiple ways over a long period. This approach is favored because many believe that a truth commission should address questions about the origins and explanation of large-scale events like this, broadly conceived in ways that neither criminal law, criminal nor civil courts can or should try to do. And from this standpoint, it's simply a mistake to emphasize the place of individuals as either wrongdoers or victims. That would only detract from this broader task of getting history right and suggesting far-reaching reforms in law and policy. Personnel screening. This legal response takes the wrongdoers to be individuals and the victims to be groups. When it's an entire organization that seems the chief wrongdoer, like the secret police, it's simply dissolved. Everyone within is discharged, and at the upper echelons at least, precluded from future public service involving any policy responsibilities. But more often, democratic reformers figure, calculate, that the government agency involved in the atrocities, like the police or military general staff, can be preserved and redirected toward very different ends, simply by appointing key new personnel to implement the new government's policies. Still, it's necessary that the individuals most directly responsible for the atrocities at all echelons be removed from office if the agency is to be trusted again loyally serving its new masters. 
Those below top ranks, provided they did not act beyond the call of duty, get construed, at least, as indifferent paper pushers, time servers, bureaucratic, banal cogs, willing to sing new ideological tunes with every shift in political winds. Procedures for discharging specific employees vary in their degree of individuation. For instance, in how much reliable evidence must be presented against a given public servant to justify depriving her of tenured public employment. Here, the victim of repressive policies implemented by those discharged is conceived as a class or group of people. For instance, all those who a particular bureaucrat with a single stroke of a pen dispatched to the gulag. Personnel screening takes the wrong, takes the wrong to consist in the civil servant's willingness to involve himself in the general process of implementing an evil policy, not his discrete intentional acts specifically injuring this or that person or persons. Official, official apology. It's necessarily an individual public servant, of course, who issues the government's apology for mass atrocities, but he does so always in his official capacity as an agent of the state, speaking in its name. It's the state as a collective actor, after all, through its agencies and those employed therein, that's here understood is to constitute the, the wrongdoer. In any event, individual, the individual or individuals issuing an apology for the wrongs is never the same as those responsible for causing them. In fact, public apologies for mass atrocity almost never even mentioned by name the individual leaders who initiated and oversaw them. Sometimes this is simply because their followers remain too powerful to permit that measure of candor. But it's also often to capture the fact that such leaders couldn't and didn't do this alone, that many others helped implement their criminal policies within the state and sometimes beyond as well. Any attempt to individualize here by naming a few obvious names diminishes the important sense then in which the design and execution of these wrongful policies were truly collective goals and institutional dynamics explaining. The apologies intended recipient, that is, the victim of mass atrocity here, will be described as both all those individually injured, injured by the violence and as well society at large, that recurring abstraction, fictional in a sense, yet indispensable here. In public apology, some act of official correspondence always directed to the individual victims and surviving family members, but there must also always be some official formulation of the sense in which mass atrocity impacted the life of the nation, often through the fear permeating everyday life, the pervasive sense of mutual distrust created by shared knowledge of ongoing atrocities in one's midst. The quality of public governance also will clearly have suffered greatly from the kind of authoritarian rulers usually responsible for mass atrocities. And so in both respects, that is, in their private lives as well as public life as citizens, it's fair to say that people in general were victims too in ways warranting apology to them. And so wording to this effect always find its way into these official pronouncements. In the discourse of official apology then, mass atrocity is chiefly wrong that a state, one type of collectivity, does to society and to the public at large, other types. Public monuments and memorials. These were first about commemorating deaths in war, but today, more often deaths from mass atrocity, whether in war or peace. In war, war memorials, the assumed wrongdoer, that is, cause of the nation's suffering, is always, of course, the enemy, the sovereign state on the other side of the conflict, the collective actor. What's changed, though, quite radically, in fact, over the last generation, is how such monu monuments conceptualized the victim. The victim used to be rendered very abstract as the country at large. Though today, victims of war are represented as concrete individuals, whether soldiers or now increasingly civilian atrocity victims, too. Maya Lin's Vietnam War Veterans Memorial revolutionized prevailing iconography in this direction. The new approach, since then adopted worldwide, abandons the collectivizing premises of this earlier semiotic, which posited the nation as one body united in the war effort, uniformly convinced by the justice of its cause. That older approach also intimated 
that the people as a whole shared vicariously in the suffering, the more immediate pain of specific soldiers. And so it could be, their suffering could be fairly subsumed under this collectivizing aesthetic. With today's atrocity memorials, of which there are now hundreds throughout the world, there's some ambivalence about whether to represent victims as individuals or as groups. In nearly all cases, individual victims were, of course, chosen on the basis of their group membership, as Rwanda and Tutsis, for instance. And yet some today call, as I suggested earlier, that depicting atrocity victims in group terms as these unintentionally reproduces, paradoxically, unwittingly, the very same dehumanizing forms of collectivization which wrongdoers themselves introduced, relied upon and acted upon in um, designing their crimes. Amnesty. Um, this is a legal, a legal response to mass atrocity only in the sense that it's designed to set limits on the scope of other responses, notably criminal prosecution, civil compensation, personnel screening. Still, it's often an indispensable part of any transitional justice regime because it's essential to social reconciliation wherever the number of individual wrongdoers is very large and hence the potential political backlash against more aggressive forms of justice seeking is considerable. The wrongdoers who formally receive, receive amnesty are invariably individual persons, though one could argue that business entities sometimes equally receive a de facto pacts. The hard questions, the really hard questions, arise over whether to grant so-called blanket amnesty to all those directly involved in mass atrocity or to restrict amnesty's scope to those whose contributions was relatively limited as by murdering a single Bosniak neighbor. There's some indication that international law has shifted over the last decade from encouraging broad-scale collective amnesties to now favoring more individuated approaches. But state practice has actually not much changed um, in deference to these international pronouncements of principle. Anything more precise than black amnesty requires careful procedures for distinguishing the actual contributions of particular individuals. An intermediate approach um, is to immunize only those beneath a certain echelons in, in the administrative apparatus. And so to collectivize the beneficiary of the amnesty only to that extent. Broad-based amnesties are also far simpler and hence less expensive to administer the more individuated approaches. But they're also a rougher kind of justice, much rougher. Um, let me just talk about one more briefly. Trade sanctions. Imposed by both particular states and individual sovereign states and international organizations like the UN or EU. Here, the victims of the wrongs that prompt the sanctions are collectivities of two kinds. If the wrong consists of waging aggressive war, then the victim is the state that suffered harm attack. And if the wrong consists of massive human rights abuse by the, by the state against its own people, then the victim will be a subnational group, usually defined in terms of racial, religious, ethnic, and so forth terms. More controversial is whether to understand the wrongdoer here as a collectivity or simply a set of discrete individuals. Global opinion has moved from the first to the second of these understandings, though with growing reservations and, in fact, some, even some backtracking. The longstanding approach to trade sanctions until the late 1990s was to target an entire country, all of its trade. The rationale was that the popular majority must be somehow complicit in the state's wrongs and therefore bear a non-trivial moral responsibility for causing them. And in any event, sanctions targeting the society as a whole is more likely to induce the people as a whole to resist rulers whose intentional international legal wrongs have prompted these sanctions brought down upon everyone in the entire society. Both arguments ultimately proved wholly unfounded and unpersuasive. That induced uh, a shift that occurred from sanctioning collectivities to targeting the individual elites responsible for the state's most repressive policies. This meant Elites both within the state and in segments of the business community, like the arms trade, profiting handsomely directly from these wrongs. These are people with the real influence over such policy, the individuals who benefit from and most care about, uh, effectively, not the public at large, especially in a non-democratic regime. These so-called smart sanctions inspired great hopes for nearly a generation. <coughs> a careful empirical assessment now suggests that they're no more successful than measures generally described as comprehensive. 
Smart sanctions were also imposed through a process that did not, until very recently at least, um, allow the individual or company that was targeted for a sanction to challenge the accusation of its complicity in repression or terrorism. And in this respect, individuated sanctions simply weren't individuated enough in a due process sense. And all this has prompted a shift back toward an intermediate position, sanctioning not entire states or societies, nor specific individuals, but particular industries, those on which the regime most depends for its hard currency, whether or not these sectors are actually the ones most directly implicated in the repression. Industries are still collectivities of a sort, usually represented by a trade association, so they're actually a collective actor. Um, yet they're much smaller in scale, of course, than a whole country. And still, we found that the impact of sanctioning the entire telecom sector or financial sector has profound, far-reaching prejudicial effect on society at large, as the recent sanctions experience of Iran sadly shows. Um, there's several other examples, other kinds of atrocity responses, but I think I've taken enough of your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. That was really, really, really fascinating. And I think perhaps that. Yeah, thank you very, very much. The, uh, the paper, which I learned very much from, has given me an opportunity to think about the differences between international and domestic responses. So that, that is my main theme. And what I take to be the scandalous uh, discrepancy between domestic responses and international responses. So I, mean, I have a couple of examples that I've picked up from the literature. <coughs> One is the Geneva Convention for the, the Law of War. I know it's not something you touched upon, but it, it is about this national, international, where the protection is afforded only against outrages upon human dignity, in particular humiliating and degrading treatment. Whereas in the domestic case, any harm you know, will be dealt with by criminal law. And you wouldn't have this higher threshold for the law to intervene. You know, that's one example, and I know there are many. Genocide is another example I've been thinking about. And if, you, if you look at the Serbia and Croatia uh, case for the International Court of Justice, what is striking about the judgment is that there was genocide. There was the actus reus, the court says. There were actions, acts of horrific violence targeted at populations and so on. But they said there was no mens rea on, on either side. The judgment was very even-handed between the two sides. And that's perfectly understandable if you look at the Genocide Convention because it requires that kind of uh, intentionality. But again, if you, if you compared it to the domestic response to similar actions, you, you'd say, no, hang on a sec, even if there's no collective intention in terms of institutions and politics, these are crimes that need to be properly investigated and, uh, and punished. So there is this, what appears to be a scandalous uh, discrepancy and what appears to be leniency or, or kind of looseness of responses in the international domain. Now, so that gets us thinking, you know, what are the differences between the international and the international? And I think they're very significant and your paper really, I think, organizes everything extremely, uh, in an extremely lucid way and, and helps us understand the problem of international remedies. So legal philosophers so far think mistakenly in my view, and I said so in my book on rights, of law as a system of rules, as, an, as a hierarchy of rules that derive from a higher source, a constitution or sovereignty of something equivalent, and all the way down to particular decisions. That's entirely false in my view. What's missing from the picture of law in the legal system is the fact that whatever legal principles we have, they are backed up by a system of remedies, a universal scheme that reassures us that whatever is announced as a rule will be given effect by people. Right? So these people may be judges, or they may be police, or they may be bailiffs that will go into your home and take away your television if you don't pay your debts. Right? That doesn't exist in the international community as we very well know as sovereign debt. So, so the, the, I think that 
the conceptual distinctness of international law is that we are missing the second part, the remedies part. So imagine if we said that in the absence of a world state, it was up to the FBI to go into Moscow and investigate corrupt deals and arrest and punish Russian oligarchs or Chechen oligarchs or German oligarchs, or I don't care, you know, what oligarchs. If you had such an imagined regime where the law would be universal and the enforcement would be universal, you realize that would be a total breakdown of law in every jurisdiction. And it would be simply a Hobbesian state of nature where everything would, be, would amount to power. Right? So it seems to me that when you understand the law as a system of power, and what I call it as a system of jurisdiction, then you understand why international law holds back and it doesn't even invite us to apply criminal law internationally. It has to be divided up into the various jurisdictions of states, which it's then upon them to uh, find out about the truth, investigate and punish uh, in ways that satisfy their own criminal law. So you see, it seems to me when you start thinking about the law as both about legality and jurisdiction, you understand the real difference between domestic law and international law. And the difference is this, international law is not a jurisdiction. And it doesn't pretend to be a jurisdiction. It doesn't promise to everyone that every aspect of blame will be sorted out through its own resources. Okay, now, so that's the difference. But, now, what does this mean for the sorts of uh, international responses and remedies that Mark outlined? What, what's the background? What is going on here? Is it some kind of mistake? Is it that international law is trying to set up jurisdiction? to rival domestic jurisdictions. And I think that's actually not the case. And in fact, if you look at the, the organization of, of the various models, international law accepts that it is in some way supplementary. It only deals with the most uh, serious cases. And its response is not about criminal law purposes of deterrence, it's not about the criminal law purpose of retribution, but for something else. For a statement that the international community is a community of justice more or less, or at least that's, that's the ambition to make a statement that the law of humanity is respected by all of us. So it is addressed to states, seems to me, and it creates duties on them to do as much as they can to defend human rights domestically and set up mechanisms like the ones you described uh, to address the most serious violations on the part of states. So criminal, international criminal law kicks in, the jurisdiction of the court kicks in, only if domestic criminal uh, institutions have failed or are likely to fail. And so if you, if you look at this then as international law, as having this particular aim, which of course is related to justice and humanity and, and, the, and, and, and universal aspects you know, of, of, of human life, I mean, it's not something uh, it's not skeptical towards these things, but the tools it has at its disposal will always be different, right? as long as it, as it remains international law. So we shouldn't feel disheartened or disappointed or frustrated by the fact that international law appears to be uh, toothless, because it isn't toothless. And I think the mechanisms you described show that you know states, when they when they take it upon themselves. Uh, to show that they respect international conducts, you know, rules of conduct, of moral conduct, domestically and uh, internationally, uh, you make moral progress. So I, I think what we can make out out of this network of rules is not a, an international jurisdiction that punishes wrongs, I don't think that's on the cards, but a cosmopolitan duty of all democratic states to respond to injustice in any way that's available. So that's all I had to say. So something about the difference between international law in response to wrongs and international law in responses to wrongs. And the fact that international law will always be different and will always appear to be less than, than in, in domestic law achieves. But if you think about what, it, what the real aim there is, I think it achieves much more 
because it establishes that the equality of human beings doesn't extend only to your own fellow citizens, but to every human in the world. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Okay, as befits me as a political scientist uh, in the room, uh, I will make some very different sorts of points um, that aren't really so much about the law um, and more about um, perpetration in particular. Um, I think I mainly agree with everything you say on victims and in the paper. It's a very rich paper, thanks again for me. I found it extremely um, uh, thought-provoking. Um, and I will make a series of essentially quite scattered comments and get through as many of them as I think appropriate. Um, I think my main question I want to have, or the main thought I want to propose, is that maybe this distinction between individualist and collectivist, um, which I accept um, Marxism isn't a binary, I think though that the collectivist half of that might be conflating two slightly distinct sorts of claims about perpetration. So I, I, I want to present an alternative, it might be compatible, but at least let's go with it, an alternative threefold distinction between claims about individuals an individualist sort of claim, here are things about this particular person and how they were responsible, genuinely kind of collective ontologies, so claims about emergent social properties or essentially social entities, so something about institutions, and the, so the one I'm sort of adding in between the two, generalizations, generalized claims, which are not about entities that have some kind of properly social existence, but are instead not uniformly true, but nevertheless fair generalizations about a large number of individuals. So let me give, as an example of what I mean by that, let me draw my own uh, work, which is on ideology. When we're talking about what role ideology plays in violence, in atrocities, we could be talking, I think, at three very different levels. We could be talking about personal ideology. So what was Hitler's ideology? What was Eichmann's ideology? What was Rudolf Hirsch's, the commandant of Auschwitz, ideology? How did that ideology lead them to do what they did? We could be talking about generalizations about shared properties of the individually unique ideologies of different people. Some people who are at my talk to this group may remember me making this point before. Um, so you say, look, Hearst and Hitler and Eichmann and all the other Nazis, they were all different, but we can talk about Nazi ideology as identifying some common properties, common beliefs that they held in common, and therefore something as a generalization called Nazi ideology does stuff but it does stuff as a sort of generalized abstraction about properties of individuals in common. But then you can also talk about Nazi ideology in its genuinely social emergent form. So how Nazi ideology got embedded in institutions that could have impacts irrespective of whether anyone believed in them or not, right? Through things like collective action problems, through things like believing that other people believe them and not being able to all work out together that you don't, or something like that. There's a whole range of ways in which you can get emergent uh, properties going on. And I feel like sometimes you're talking about generalizations and sometimes you're talking about genuinely collectivist um, uh, 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 properties. One interesting, just a tiny bit of a uh, link in here, this links in a little bit, to, there's some philosophical literature on the notion of generics. I don't know if you're aware of this. This is a, a philosopher called Sally Haslanger who does very interesting work on the discursive power of generics. Generics, whenever we refer, refer to a group or a generic statement, so one of the examples uses in like mosquitoes transmit malaria. Is it malaria that mosquitoes transmit? I don't know. don't know anything about mosquitoes. Um, only half of mosquitoes actually transmit malaria, right? But we say mosquitoes transmit malaria. Similarly, we say Jews were the victims of the Holocaust. Right? Now, not all Jews were necessarily victims, or, or, or perhaps more accurately, there's a different sense in which we could be using the generic there. We could be saying literally all Jews were victims of the Holocaust. It was some sort of assault on all Jewish people by virtue of their identity. Or it could just be, again, this sort of generalized generic, right? A big category of people, or many of them, were targeted by, or there are other possibilities. So that's part of what I think the problem going on here. And I think the argument of the philosophers is that generics tend to be confusing and that we should disentangle them. And that's why I'm sort of suggesting that maybe it might be useful to make this distinction between individualized, um, uh, uh, generalized and collectivist. It also might be very relevant for reparations, for example. Like, it's a very different statement whether you're saying, look, in some important sense, the British state was responsible. And therefore, even though none of us alive today were involved in, say, colonial atrocities, there's still a sense in which the British state bears some kind of, its social ontology bears some kind of responsibility, as just opposed to saying many of the British people around in the 18th and 19th century were responsible. So that's my first claim. Then my second claim, and I might just stop it with my second claim, but, or, or my second question, is one, having made that distinction, do we really need the collectivist account, the genuinely social 
ontology emergent property type of claim to grapple with some of the problems that you're talking about. Some of them, like, you know, that there is a genuine sense in which I think you want to make a claim about properly social entities. So, for example, a few points in the paper, uh, Mark makes the point that, you know, it seems like sometimes it wasn't really the individuals in any meaningful sense who were necessarily to blame. So uh, I think uh, three examples are mentioned in the paper, Yugoslavia, uh, uh, apartheid in South Africa, and Stasi persecutions in East Germany. In each case, the individuals came and went, but basically, you know, properly continuous features of the structure were really behind the, the oppression was going on. And I just want to suggest that maybe that's a, that's a perspective that could be vulnerable to challenge, that to some degree that effaces what even if you think that lots of the individuals who make up these institutions, even if you think they do quite small individual acts, they still do individual acts. You know, various leaders of the Stasi could have reformed it, for example, and didn't, instead pushed it in certain directions. I, I notice that the paper doesn't really say very much about the genesis of institutions, or where institutions or structures or these sort of social entities come from. Would it, what, what's wrong with just saying, look, yeah, ultimately institutions created these effects, but these institutions were constituted by individuals and they were created by individuals and it's those individuals who we should hold responsible. So I think you know, a lot of your justifications of why it often makes sense to talk about a collectivist ontology, it seems to me either could be cashed out as just a statement about generalizations or I think could be put under pressure. We could make an argument that no, look, even though the institutions of the Stasi were constantly present and therefore had some role to play, we can hold the people that created those institutions and who upheld those institutions responsible. We don't need to go to this like social level. It's not that there isn't that social level, but we don't necessarily need to go there in talking about things um, like liability and blameworthiness. One tiny additional point, which, which I won't go into any detail with. I also just sometimes wonder whether in the paper these very distinct notions of things like blameworthiness, liability, causal responsibility, and say something like preventive potential could be pulled apart a bit more. Sometimes it seems to me like you make the claim that a certain mode, like for example trade sanctions was the one I was thinking of, is predicated on a certain claim about wrongdoing, when I think you know, people could just say it's just a claim about where preventive potential lies, right? or a claim about causal efficacy. right? Why do we, after trying to very targetively select Putin and just Putin's allies, why do we then sort of actually try and target the wider energy industry? That might just not be to do with any kind of claim about who's responsible or who's blameworthy or who the wrongdoer is. It just says, look, this isn't working. We need to try something else because ultimately our obligation here is to prevent a bad thing from happening or something like that. And I just feel maybe those different notions could be teased out sometimes a bit better. These are all very friendly amendments and criticisms. It was a great paper. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you, Jonathan. That's very helpful.